This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. No comedic quip this time? No fake Rocky? Nah. You don't have something like that? Well, no, not really. I mean, I could uh, do the the brother character, but that would be highly inappropriate. Yeah, just a little bit. I mean, I would have thought that uh, you would have at least tried like a Chris Elliott impersonation for one of our guests oh, here. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yes. Well, we also welcome back our returning celebrity guest scorer, comedian, host of Midnight Facts for Insomniacs, just a banger of a title, and friend of the show, Shane Rogers. Thanks, you guys. Thanks so much for having me. I think, is this number three? Four, my friend. Four. One more to go before I get one. What is one it? more and you get the hat. the hat. There yeah. we go. That's what I'm waiting for. <laughs> it's a nice hat. That is a sweet hat. I'm excited. We also welcome back our most frequent guest, Christine Duncan. Hello. Thanks for having me back. And thank you to our live studio audience for that welcoming applause here. (laughs) Tonight, for our 180th episode, we discuss the 1998 romantic comedy, There's Something About Mary, written and directed by Peter and Bobby Farrelly, Co-written with Ed Dechter and John J. Strauss. Music by Jonathan Richman. Starring Cameron Diaz as Mary Jensen. Matt Dillon as Pat Healy. Ben Stiller as Ted Stroman. Lee Evans as Tucker slash Norm Phipps. Chris Elliott as Dom Woogie Wooganowski. Lynn Shea as Magda. Jeffrey Tambor as Sully. Marky Post as Sheila Jensen. W. Earl Brown as Warren Jensen. Keith David as Charlie, Sarah Silverman as Brenda, Willie Garson as Dr. Bob, quote-unquote, Zitface, and Brett Favre as himself. Recognition for this movie? There's Something About Mary was released on July 15, 1998. The film was 1998's third highest-grossing film in North America, as well as the fourth highest-grossing film of the year globally, making a rough total of $370 million on a budget of $23 million. It received numerous accolades from critics at the time, and the AFI has recognized it on the following list. In the year 2000, on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs, it was at number 27. In 2002, it was a nominated movie for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Passions. 2007, it was a nominated movie for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies, 10th Anniversary Edition. And for 2008, It was nominated as a romantic comedy for AFI's 10 Top 10 list. In 2000, readers of Total Film Magazine voted There's Something About Mary, the fourth greatest comedy film of all time. There's Something About Mary currently holds an 84% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 69 score on Metacritic, and a 3.2 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, Dad, as we begin each week, what is your relationship to this movie? Or, better yet... Would you like me to ask mom first, since you doubted she would know exactly when you saw this film first? I'll defer. Okay, so we put mom right on the spot, right off Front Street. As far as I remember, um, we had a date night 
they put the kids to bed and you re-rented the movie. No. I know we didn't see this theater. We saw this at home. No, you saw it at the theater. <laughs> I didn't. With who? Yes. I don't know, but it wasn't with me. I didn't see this in the theater. So how do you know I saw yes, it in you the did. theater? <laughs> because you came back and told me all about it. I don't remember. You said I would never like it. Oh. Because it was stupid. <laughs> That does sound like you. <laughs> no, I thought we watched it together at home. Nope. I saw it on my own. Um, I think I didn't see it until it was we rented it. And she watched it for the second yeah, well, time. Maybe that's what I remember. I don't remember then because I don't remember seeing it in the theater ever. Shane, do you have a memorable relationship with the film? Yeah, I saw this movie in the theater when I was in college with a girlfriend. She was Dutch. She was from Holland. And I wasn't sure how well it was going to kind of translate, but it was probably the hardest I've ever laughed in a theater. I think I hadn't seen a lot of comedy movies in theaters, just on VHS when I was younger, maybe, you know, DVDs around that point. But that was a movie that uh, really stands out to me as being the probably the funniest movie I've ever seen in in a theater. I You know, I, I had seen some great classics that I used to watch over and over again, Spinal Tap and Holy Grail and, you know, these amazing comedies. But I had never been in a theater with that many people laughing at something together at the same time. And not only was it, and I think that was part of the experience because everyone was just losing their minds in that theater. I mean, people were like falling off their chairs. It was just like, a, it was like a scene in a movie. And I feel like, you know, it's a very transgressive movie. There's a, there were, it's kind of a gross out film. It breaks some barriers and people just could not believe what they were seeing and they were loving it. And so it was, I have really fond memories of seeing this movie. Uh, and even my girlfriend who was Dutch, she spoke great English, so it wasn't, you know, super hard for her. But I wasn't sure if cult culturally, if it would fully translate, but it did. She thought it was hilarious. And it was just a great night and a great memory. Yeah, this is the second 1998 comedy that you've been on for. Is there something about that particular year for you? I guess. I don't know. That was, I mean, that was a very sort of formative time in my life, for sure. My couple, first couple of years at college. So, yeah, probably. Yeah, I don't remember the first time I actually saw this. I'm sure it was just one that I checked a box on. I remembered roughly the, obviously, the hair gel scene. Yeah. So that one stuck out. And I remembered the <laughs> ending with Brett, is it? Favre. Favre? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Given that uh, two of us on this program are Packer <laughs> owners. Oh. I will always remember the Franks and Beans scene because... It just makes me cringe. Oh, that's one of the funniest scenes for me in history. Like, I, that's something that I will always remember. Uh, I'm a huge Niners fan, too. And so I love that uh, that's one of the, the final lines of the movie. As you know, I'm a Niners fan. <laughs> well, obviously, I have an upcoming question on that one. That's a bit of a nitpick for me, but we'll, we'll get to that. So just teasing a little bit out here on the audience. So what do you think this movie is about? Well... <laughs> Being the oldest person in the, uh, I don't know what you would call this, the virtual room, I think everybody has some person that they had a crush on in high school that they always think about once in a while. What if things would have been different? And then you go back and you see them at the high school reunion, and sometimes the attraction's still there, and other times you're like, what the hell was I thinking about? And I think that's really where the premise of this movie came from. I, I just have this feeling that one of the Farleys just went to a high school reunion and thought, 
you know, I really had a crush on her. I wonder if you could make this into a comedy and came up with this concept. So I don't know if it's really about anything other than that. It's the ultimate what could have been movie, right? And like you said, we all have that. And I think I don't know anyone for whom that has not been a disappointment. Like I've never known anyone and, and in my life, certainly whenever I've sort of tried to recapture that I did when I was in college, actually go and visit an ex-girlfriend that I'd been in love with in my high school sweetheart. And, you know, it just wasn't the same. She wasn't the person I remembered anymore. We people change. So it's never worked out the way you want it to. And this movie gets to be the fantasy of like exactly the person that you would have hoped this person would have turned into. And the fact that old romances or old relationships, friendships or whatever, still have a place in our lives, even if it's a fantasy or even if it's, you know, whatever, whatever was there before. Something you'd like to tell me? No. <laughs> Not that you wouldn't oh, okay. know anyway. Uh, if you're going to take something universal away from this, I would assume it has to be how stupid men are around pretty girls and specifically any of them that are actually nice to you. It's one thing for the cheerleader who doesn't give you the time of day and is a stuck up bitch. It's another thing when they're nice to you and they kind of seemingly flirt without meaning to flirt with you. And and then we just fall all over ourselves. Well, I remember going to my, uh, was my... 10-year reunion, and I had all these girls that I knew from high school that were coming up and talking to me like we were buddies, and then the captain of the football team, the quarterback who played at the University of Wisconsin as a fourth-string walk-on, came up, put his arm around me, and said, you know, I always liked you, and I'm going, like, I didn't even know you knew my name. Not even your friends knew your name. (laughs) Yeah, great callback. (laughs) Some of my best friends don't know. That's on my quotes. That was in my quotes. What defines a good romantic comedy for you? Yeah, I think for romantic comedy, the people have to be likable. They have you have to sort of fall in love with the characters a little bit. And that is something that works for me in this movie is that I, I get it with Cameron Diaz. Like it's weird because with her on a purely physical level, I find her kind of unique looking like she's obviously beautiful she's a beautiful human being but it's it's in a very strange way she's not like conventionally perfect her eyes are very far apart there's just a her face is kind of weird and so i've never like really gotten it with her physically like i look at her and i'm like oh she's pretty but it's not something where i would look at her and be like starstruck or just blown out of the water but her the character of mary in this movie i fall in love with 100% and so i think you have to you have to sort of be able to put yourself in, you have to understand why all these guys would go bonkers over this person. And that's why I think they did great casting with this because I can't imagine someone else that, you know, would be believable for them to act this way. But she's just so like, you know, everything. She's sporty, she's funny, she's spunky. She's got a sense of humor. So for me, I have to like both the characters and I also like Ben Stiller. I have to be able to identify with one of the characters and and I he's the everyman, he's the straight man in this movie. And he's also the only one who's not, doesn't have nefarious intentions toward her and, you know, tries to do the right thing. And so you sort of have to, I think, love the characters a little bit. And I I do with these two. I I have to say too the same thing. I think it has to be funny. It has to hit me the right way. And the characters have to be relatable. I have to be able to see myself in one of those positions, in one of those characters and that they have enough of my personality somewhere to to make them relate to me. 
so that I can put myself in their position. I'm not sure that's as important for me in a romantic comedy so much as I think Shane hit it on the head. You have to kind of want them to end up together at the end. Otherwise, it doesn't really work. And so you have to buy in that these characters are deserving of a happy ending. Now, it's sometimes exemplified by the fact that they're around a bunch of other jerks who you want definitely to not find love. But there has to be at least the element where you buy in that, oh, he's a good guy. And if things had just broken a little bit better for him, it might be different. Or she's a nice girl. Why can't she find like a good guy? Why does she keep making bad decisions on all of these losers? The definition for me is simple, which is it has to be funny throughout the film. And the last 15 minutes have to leave you with a gnawing kind of gooey feeling in your the pit of your stomach that you're like oh yeah okay this is this is love this is romance whatever and that's the payoff it's laugh 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 then come away feeling emotionally bonded so what you're saying is is you have a little bit of nougat to you. <laughs> yes yeah like a snickers it has to be satisfying i think i i limit who knows where my caramel is kept <laughs> so do you want to dig a little bit more into the background of the film dad do you have a plot summary ready for us sure there's something about mary is a hilarious romantic comedy that takes a fresh and often outrageous approach to the classic boy meets girl story the film follows the misadventures of ted stroman a kind-hearted and love-struck young man who has been infatuated with mary jensen since their high school days the story begins with Ted's fateful prom night when he plans to take Mary as his date. However, an embarrassing zipper incident leads to a mortifying and unforgettable disaster. Ted's chances with Mary are dashed, and he becomes the laughing stock of his classmates. Thirteen years later, Ted, Ben Stiller, is still haunted by the memory of Mary. His best friend, Dom, Chris Elliott, suggests hiring a private investigator named Pat Healy, Matt Dillon, to track her down. However, Pat becomes smitten with Mary himself and decides to manipulate the situation to his advantage. Ted, fueled by his persistent infatuation, decides to take matters into his own hands and also heads to Florida to win her heart. But Ted's clumsy attempts to impress Mary lead to a series of comical and cringeworthy situations. The film hilariously explores the lengths people are willing to go to pursue their desires, while also shedding light on the absurdity of idealizing someone from afar. There's something about Mary as a raunchy yet heartwarming comedy that delves into the complexities of love, attraction, and the hilarity that ensues when reality clashes with fantasy. Thank you. Did you know? According to Bobby Farrelly, the scene where Ted accidentally gets his scrotum stuck in his pants fly was inspired by a real incident. When their sister was listening to some records with some 8th grade students in the basement of their house, one of the kids went up to the bathroom and he zipped himself up. He was in there for a long time. My dad, who was a doctor, actually had to go in and say, Hey kid, you alright? His parents never told them the story until years later because they wanted to save the kid embarrassment. When they told us, we were laughing so hard, we were like, oh my god, so we just worked it into the story. Did you know? The studio was initially reluctant to allow Ben Stiller, the Farrelly brothers' first choice, 
to star, so the brothers decided upon a then-unknown Owen Wilson instead. When the studio was even more reluctant to let Wilson star, they agreed to allow the Farrelly's to cast Stiller. Did you know? After the financial losses suffered from Kingpin from 1996, the Farrelly brothers thought their next film would probably be their last. So they decided to go all out and deliver the most hysterically black comedy they could dream up. When this film became a box office smash hit, the Farrelly's careers were safe to continue. Did you know? Chris Farley was considered for the part of Warren. He later died during the time this was being made. Did you know? According to Peter Farrelly, Cameron Diaz had a better swing than the golfer hired to stand in for her. And with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 181st episode, we discuss the early Alfred Hitchcock classic, The Lady Vanishes, from 1938, celebrating its 85th anniversary. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock, written by Alma Reville, Sidney Gilliatt, and Frank Launder, music by Louis Levy and Charles Williams, starring Margaret Lockwood, Michael Redgrave, and Paul Lucas. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. By the way, do you know who Alma was? Alma. Mrs. Hitchcock. Ah. So that takes us to best performance. Dad, who did you have down? I think, I mean, I'll get to her later, but even though uh, it's something about Mary, Ben Stiller made this film for me. I can't say that there's been much that I've seen Ben Stiller in as far as a movie that I didn't find him absolutely wonderful in. But then again, you know, I'm old enough. I remember watching his parents perform on the Ed Sullivan show on Sunday nights and thought they were uh, quite hilarious and uh, that Gene was obviously passed on. I also had Ben Stiller as my best performer. I think he's um, smooth in every situation. I think he he's the relatable character, and yet he's still the hero of the day. And I think he did a good job playing that screwball teenager who with the overgrown hair, and I don't know. I just think he does a great job in whatever he does. And in this movie, he, he flows well from the teenager to the adult. Shane, did you also have Ben Stiller? I didn't, which is funny because I'm a huge Ben Stiller fan, and I think he's great in everything he does. I've never not liked a Ben Stiller performance. But unlike in movies, the only time I've seen Ben Stiller not be kind of Ben Stiller was maybe in Zoolander. But other than that, he's kind of always Ben Stiller. It's like in Meet the Parents, he's the same character. He's the kind of fish out of water, straight man character. And I love that character, but I think I just know he's going to do that well. And it's maybe it just doesn't make an impression on me anymore. And the character that really comes across or at least the actor that I think really made an impression for me was Matt Dillon because I'd never really seen him this way. I mean, Matt Dillon was always the kind of heartthrob leading man, brooding guy. And to have him be this over the top, you know, sleazy scoundrel character that for some reason I really like, I like Healy. I think he's funny. He's endearing in some way. And uh, that, I don't know, that character just tickles me and it just works. So I went with somebody completely different. I, enjoy Ben Stiller and just about everything that he's done. I do think that there is another side to Ben Stiller that he only brings out on certain occasions like heavyweights or dodgeball. But I went with Bobby and Peter Farrelly. They create the tone for this. I think 
the attitude of we're going to really go for this type of mentality as far as the gags and the rather gross out humor during the course of the film kind of gives it its ambiance or its ineffable quality that everything that's centered around what is the movie. Yes, you have likable stars, but at the end of it, you come away not saying, hmm, I really thought that Ben Stiller was, you know, like the best comedian. It was, oh, do you remember the hair gel scene? Or do you remember the hitchhiker? Do you remember when he zipped up his... Yeah. It did feel like they felt like they had nothing to lose and they kind of swung for the fences on this one. And, you know, those scenes, I just remember being so shocked by scenes like the dog when he's trying to revive the dog and, you know, (laughs) electrocuting it and just all the and then the fight scene between Ben Stiller and the dog where he's like, you know, doing atomic power drops on this dog and just things that you would never see in a movie before that. And now looking back, you know, all those boundaries have been pushed now, maybe even a little farther than they need to be. So it's not as transgressive as it felt at the time. But I remember at the time just being shocked that this was happening and that it was as funny as it was and that it was working. And that was the Fairley Brothers. They were that gutsy to kind of, you know, take those chances. I still don't understand some of the humor about the mentally handicapped people and Matt Dillon getting one a leash so that they could roam about. I mean, I don't think it's supposed it's what's funny about it is how un politically correct and clueless he is that like he thinks that's okay to say and I think what's funny about it is that we all know that's not okay to say so I don't think that it's mean-spirited and that they're making fun of handicapped people I think they're making fun of a guy who thinks it's okay to say that about handicapped people oh I I understand Uh, the differentiation I'm just saying that's not something you're going to be talking about in 2023 no it is and you know even now it doesn't kind of hold up well just because again you couldn't get away with even making Having people who maybe aren't even handicapped in a handicapped movie, it just wouldn't or fly at all. having somebody pretend to be a handicapped Englishman. Yeah, exactly. Let let let's put it this way: it was poking fun not just at his insensitivity. There was a large portion of the public that was that character yeah. and thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a reason why it took a huge undertaking to pass the Americans Disabilities Act because there were a lot of people who thought that way and it's poking fun at them as much as anything. Now, the actors doing some of this stuff, yeah, but anyway. It is still, there's a lot of, there are definitely cringy moments for sure, but it's it was a little bit of a different time and again, they were swinging for the fences so sometimes they're going to miss and maybe it's going to be a little offensive or go too far but uh, overall I think it's pretty great best secondary performance I also had Matt Dillon and it's because somehow he's a charismatic sleazeball I mean that's that's difficult to pull off I don't know I mean I could sense myself if there was somebody worth being attracted to kind of pulling the same type of stunt not to the extent where I try and pretend to be an architect and that I built some restaurant down from the Estadio Olimpico but even so. <laughs> and he's, you know, he is this good looking leading man kind of uh, actor. Uh, that's kind of what he was known for. And it was just very gutsy for him to take that leap. And he goes all in. And that, you know, I, you would think that maybe he'd pull some punches just because he sort of wants to still be cool or something. But he's not cool at all in this movie. And he goes 100% toward, you know, being the sleazy creep. 
And but I, I find that in, again, I find that endearing. I find that somehow kind of charismatic and, and winning. The first time I watched it, I didn't catch all the little puns. He made about three different puns of his own films. Oh, I missed that. Oh, yeah. He makes a pun about his role in the Coca-Cola Kid, where he played the Cabana Boy. It was a it was a, a Gary Marshall film. He makes another pun about, and I'm trying to remember which one. Was it the Was he in the Wild Things? Yes. Yeah, he makes a pun about that. I mean, he's like referencing his own movies uh, uh, several different times. It's very subtle, but I caught it. And I'm like, oh, he's poking fun at himself. So I'm like, yeah, okay. Mom, best secondary. You guys aren't going to believe this, but I have Chris Elliott, actually. I just think, yes. (laughs) With his blistery face? Yes, (laughs) because he just does it so well. Again, he's like what Shane was saying before. He's another character who like always plays the same character, but there was something... There was just something about the way he played up the whole, um, oh, I'm this best friend guy, you know, the the guy that just kind of give you all this advice. And then coming across as this creepy guy with the, you know, the face and the blisters and the plays stupid. Well, I just I liked he went from from being, oh, I'm your best friend to, you know, creepy stalker. And it still was good. It still came across, even though I'm not a Chris Elliott fan. It is a good twist in the end of the film. But I thought for sure you would have had him for your most charismatic. No, no, actually, I've met Dylan as my, because you want to like him, but you just can't because everything he's doing is so bad um, and just so wrong. So no, he's my most charismatic. But yeah, Chris Elliott, I think, just does that whole that whole twist you're not expecting it well i mean if you've watched the film before you know that but um when you first watch that film how he goes from one to the other and you're like wait whoa you're woogie <laughs> my secondary were the farleys because it it took a minute to really stop and think about the writing and the creation of it because the characters are so powerful in and of themselves and then you had to stop and think about, okay, who created these characters? And so that's why, because I had to stop and think about the writing itself. That's why I went with the Farleys. But as far as most charismatic, I have a tie. I think it's both Cameron Diaz and Chris Elliott. Because Chris Elliott just oozes sex appeal. <laughs> right out of those blisters. <laughs> well, and I, let me just let me share a little bit of a story. Okay, when I'm a kid, my dad, one of his favorite shows were two guys who did a radio show called Bob and Ray, Bob Gould and Ray Elliott. And he would go on, and that's who the studio is named after is my dad, Ron, Ronnie Duncan. Okay, and he just absolutely loved them. Well, Ray Elliott is Chris Elliott's dad. And when Chris Elliott did a show on Fox, Bob Elliott played his dad on the show. Every morning he would come to the breakfast table and Bob Elliott would make some caustic comment about how horrible his son was sitting in a bathrobe and just kind of, you know, raise an eyebrow. And What was the show called? I used to watch it. Yes. I remember- uh, 
And it had because you know what I remember about it was I think the like intro song was that stand song. It was like stand in the place where you live. And I loved that song. And I remember that as being the intro to it. And I watched it all the time. And it was like bad life or something. I don't even remember what the name was. But yeah, I know the show you're talking about. <laughs> yes, because Bob and Ray were notorious for some of their bits. Like um, they would interview the head of Slow Talkers of America. Now, when you're doing a radio show, after about two or three minutes of that, you're just kind of rolling. One of us here hated that show and developed an absolute disdain for him and would get up and leave whenever that show would come on on Sunday nights on Fox, (laughs) uh, even though I thought it was hilarious. He's trying to be this obnoxious. So the show is named Get a Life. Okay. And I think Chris Elliott has been playing that character for the last 25 years, even through his epic performance as Roland Shit. Well, it, yes, but it was even before that because Dave Letterman, or David Letterman was a huge Bob and Ray fan. And so one of the first writers, when he went to nights, he hired Chris Elliott as one of the writers and he started doing guest spots where he was would perform on Letterman. So this is dating back into like the early 80s, 80, 81. Chris Elliott would do guest spots on David Letterman. So Shane, we haven't gotten your secondary or charismatic, if you would. Uh, sure. So my most charismatic is Cameron Diaz. I think it's called There's Something About Mary. And this movie has to justify having her in the title and having it be all about her. And again, having her be so compelling that these guys act crazy. All of the craziness in this film is driven by the this one woman's charisma and charm. And she has to pull that off. And I feel like Cameron Diaz absolutely nails it. I remember just being in love with that character, thinking for many years that like that was the perfect woman. I mean, they they went, you know, having her be a golf player and she's into sports and she's but she's also like has a really kind heart and she's sweet but she's also you know very uh savvy she's not just like you know she kind of rejects guys very easily but with you know with grace and she's funny it just she nailed it it's pitch perfect and it's just a very charismatic role and i love her in it and then my secondary would be lee evans playing tucker who i thought I just loved that character. I remember being so shocked when he switched over to the kind of, you know, surfer dude voice and character. He just, he plays both of those so convincingly and he's just got to be a great actor. I don't really know anything about this guy except that he pulls off both of those sides of the role uh, seamlessly and he's just very impressive to me and I've always loved that character. So for my charismatic, I will second everything that you just said on Cameron Diaz. It has to be her because that's what the movie's about. She has to be the most charismatic because otherwise, why would it make sense for like four or five different guys to be fawning after her? As far as best scene, I only have six down. So you guys may have some other suggestions to throw in here. I kind of just hit the high points. Prom, Healy in Miami, Hitchhiker slash Arrested, Tucker, Hair Gel, and Brett and Woogie. So what did I miss? The first two for me are maybe a tie. Healy in Miami, I love. I love that whole 
Healy segment. That's why he's one of my favorite characters. But for me, it's prom. When I think about something about Mary, that is the scene I think about. And, you know, you're never going to get the image of when they actually show it out of your head. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, the yelling, we got a bleeder. Like, it's just the entire, the dad. I love the dad character and him, like, coming in and then calling her in. You got you to gotta see this. Just the entire thing is comedy gold is such a classic and it's so wrong it shouldn't exist it's a movie it's a scene that shouldn't exist and i'll just tell a quick story i also had some experience with this this is gonna open way too many cans of worms and i won't go into detail but i was actually so i grew up in a circus i was in i was an acrobat in a circus when i was a little kid and we had to wear i was nine years old we had to wear these they were roustabout suits so they were basically uh full body like unitard kind of things or like a I, I don't know what to call it, but it had a zipper that went all the way down to the front. And we had these porta potties. That was the only place we could go to the restroom. And I remember in between I had I had to run off and use the restroom and I had to be back for like a, a queue. I had to go on stage and I zipped too fast and was panicking because I was in there in so much pain. It luckily nowhere near what you see in that in that in that still shot. Uh, but it's still, it's very painful. Most guys have probably had some type of experience like this. For me, it was pretty drastic and there was blood involved. And uh, I had to go back on stage and try and do flips after this. And uh, so I had probably more grimacing than the average person would watching this. There was probably more flinch worthy for me seeing this scene happen. And I had, so I have maybe a more emotional connection to it. But that is the scene that always sticks out to me. I think that's the most amazing scene. I think we have our lead for the episode. <laughs> oh god <laughs> anyway, I shouldn't have told this story this was a, this was a bad idea no I, I'm glad you did well I was about to say I mean I've accidentally like zipped the tip in but Ugh. I mean never to quite that level yeah yeah oh man our very own flying dick grace in here <laughs> oh, okay anybody else favorite scene or best scene. What do you think is the best scene? Favorite scene we'll get to in a second. I have that too. I just have, you know, when he gets it stuck and then the dad comes in and, oh, you got to see this. And then the cop is cut from the like, window. You got to see this. And <laughs> it's just like, how many more people can you show this poor, <laughs> this poor oh. guy? That family must have been wealthy to fit like five people in the same bathroom. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I loved, I loved the way the dad answered the door. Mm-hmm. You know, like, well, she went with her boyfriend. I mean, I can so see myself doing that. Yeah. Yes. I love, and I love that that becomes a theme. The whole like, I'm fucking with you, Ted. And then you know, Mary, <laughs> Mary does. Mary has that. She like inherits that. I'm fucking with you, Ted. And she obviously gets that from her Weisenheimer father, which I love that line too. Dad, I had the prom scene for that reason too. Ooh, three for three. Yep. It is extremely cringeworthy. I will not share, but let's just put it this way. It can't feel any better than what I experienced with a medical procedure that I've described to you, Tom. Oh, and <laughs> <laughs> Why the fuck are you doing this now? <laughs> and so let's just put it that way. If it's any if it's anywhere close to that, oh my god. <sighs> Moving on. It's up to you, Tom. <laughs> I also had that listed as my favorite scene for some very obvious reasons. I actually thought it was the best part of the movie. 
it's where everything kind of worked the best for me. After that, it kind of like was a little bit uneven uh, as far as I was concerned because it had so many interweaving characters that I couldn't keep track of who we were supposed to be investing in, whether it was supposed to be Healy, whether it was supposed to be Ted, especially because we start the movie with Ted, but then he's not on screen for like a good half an hour. So it, it just got a little bit mixed up, but I thought starting out with the high school aspect of it grounded the movie a, a lot for me. So that's probably my favorite scene, even though it's probably the most uncomfortable. My favorite scene is um, the hair gel scene. <laughs> and this is the one where the first time I saw this movie, I could not stop laughing. And even when I think about it now, it makes me giggle. Um, you know, the whole, is that hair gel? And then, you know, and then they show the scene of the date and her hair is standing up and you can't not look at it. You just can't stop looking at it because you know what that is. And he's trying not to look at it, but can't help himself, you know, cause he knows what's there, but it's just, yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, you have to, you have to watch and go, oh my gosh, what's she going to think when she goes home, you know, as a woman, what am I, oh my gosh, you know, I, why didn't he say something to me? It's been like that all night. But yeah, so the hair gel scene is my favorite. For as many times as you've accused me of being juvenile, apparently we <laughs> all have a third grade boy in us. <laughs> uh, maybe so. I think that's probably up there for me. That it's really hard to pick a favorite scene. I love the date with Healy. I love there obviously the prom scene. Uh, I think the whole scene with the hair gel, including how that got started. I loved the idea that you're going out with a loaded gun. That whole speech that he gives him, and the like, you don't you don't flog the dolphin. He doesn't flog the dolphin before a date. That I remember just it just I lost it in the movie theater. And it was one of those things that actually a lot of guys, I think, sort of started asking themselves, like, maybe this is something that we should be doing strategically. As a, and some, some of my friends were like, oh, yeah, we've been doing that for years. So I don't know. That whole scene just always gets me. That's probably probably up there. It's at least tied for one of my favorites. Dad? I had thought of the, uh, the hair gel, and I thought about the prom, but ultimately... I had to place myself into the situation, the hitchhiker and the arrest, because to me, that would be kind of my luck. I would pick up a hitchhiker and he would be a, you know, a mass murderer and I'd try to get out of the car and I'd end up stumbling over some sort of like orgy <laughs> because and then I'd be going, huh? So I just... I, I just felt for him at that moment in time, but I'm going, yeah, yeah. I could just see some of those weird situations in my life where that kind of stuff has happened. I've met Harlan Williams, by the way. He's the he's a very famous Canadian comedian who does who plays that hitchhiker, and uh, he's a great guy. He's really funny. For most indelible moment, I have it down to two. It's either the hair gel or it's got to be the ending. Brett Favre randomly shows up in this movie and is probably one of the more famous things about the movie. Not to mention Chris Elliott's, like, face full of pus. <laughs> it just keeps getting worse through the whole movie until, yeah, mm. until he's got one on his eye. And you can't help but look at that either. 
Yeah, apparently that was Chris Elliott's idea that he liked the that he suggested that he should have some kind of condition that worsens so that at least there would be clues throughout the movie. <laughs> Dad, most indelible? Uh, I have the hair gel. And what I did was is I would just talk to random people and I'd tell them what movie we're going to do and they'd immediately everybody would go, hair gel. And so I'm like, okay, well, I guess that's the most indelible moment. It is for me and apparently for almost everyone else that I casually mention the film to. For me, it's prom. I think whenever I think of the movie, that's what I think of. And most people I know probably that's the, the, the scene that sticks out the most. But definitely hair gel's up there. Mom, are you going to make it a 444? Yeah, the hair gel thing. <laughs> I, I mean, that's... When I think of this movie, just like Shane said, that's exactly what I think of because I laughed so hard during that time period. I just couldn't help myself. And so for me, that's it. Well, that looks like a good spot to take our second break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, releasing in the early part of this September, friend of the show Adam Hitchcock of the Streaming Circuit Podcast and I are back with our special monthly series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half we will apply the Stan Lee rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. This month we are covering Captain America, the first Avenger from 2011. Don't miss out. Make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. Shane, how are things going over at Midnight Facts for Insomniacs? Things have been going great. We are, it's really interesting. So the co-host and I are moving in together. We'll be cohabitating again. We used to live together back when we first moved to Santa Cruz and way before we ever had a podcast, back when we were in bands together. Now we're moving in together and kind of combining forces and we're going to have our own little studio moved all the way into the new place. And that's what I was doing today. That's why I'm so kind of exhausted and beat up today. So I've been moving boxes all day. But uh, so, yeah, we are making our life partnership official on <laughs> from this podcast. It feels like we've been together forever. He's actually going through a very amicable divorce at this point, And uh, I'm having a separation situation. So it just worked out. And uh, the show has been going great. And I think it's going to be fun because we're going to be able to do even more content and more of our live streams and everything that we've been doing lately. Uh, so I know the fans will benefit from our uh, relationship woes. <laughs> so uh, things are going great in our podcast, probably because things are falling apart in our personal lives. <laughs> it's irony. So you're just going to record your dinner conversations? I mean, basically, the podcast feels like our dinner conversations a lot of the time. So <laughs> it's just us BSing. But uh, no, I have. Um, and now I've actually expanded my team a little bit. I have a, a couple research minions who help me out with doing a lot of the research because it is a very research intensive podcast. And um, I've got help with our uh, social media and stuff. So hopefully that'll be taking some of the responsibility away from me and we can focus more on on the content again. Well, that sounds great. Yeah, it's been awesome. And congratulations on whatever this new relationship, I guess, would be. <laughs> It'll be. It's just it's a very good friendship. We've been we've known each other since we were like almost around 16 years old. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Chip Docs, 80, American production designer and art director, was involved with General Hospital, Days of Our Lives, and the movie Night Shift. Jamie Christopher, 
52, an American assistant director, worked on Star Wars The Last Jedi, Guardians of the Galaxy, Harry Potter, and Knives Out. Yeah, he was a consistent collaborator with both Ryan Johnson and with, uh, I believe, James Gunn. He had gotten his start originally on the much maligned Alien 3 with David Fincher at the time. But he's gone on to do a lot of different Ryan Johnson projects as an assistant director. He was involved in both Knives Out, and I think he was on Glass Onion. He was about to start work on the Fantastic Four and has been a longtime collaborator in the Marvel Cinematic Universe family, including, I think, all three Guardians films, Thor, The Dark World, and one other one that I don't recall. But he also was the assistant director on all eight Harry Potter films. So a very renowned assistant director had worked on a lot of films that a lot of people in our audience, I think, have seen. By the way, anybody know what the movie Night Shift was? Ron Howard directed with Henry Winkler and Batman. Which one? Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton. Oh, Michael Keaton. Yep. Um, they're running a brothel out of a uh, out of the mor- or out of the uh, mortuary or the the morgue. <laughs> <Jesus>. Okay. <laughs> there is a premise. Uh, that does sound like Henry the Winkler, I guess. <laughs> it, it was different. And so we remember these here for their contributions to TV, film, and everything in between with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. All right, the moment you've been waiting for, our awkward transition to best funniest lines. I'll start off here. Norm, really? Where would I have seen your work? Pat, well, have you been to, uh, let me see, Santiago, Chile? Twice last year. Which building's yours? Are you familiar with the soccer stadium? Did you build the Estadio Olimpico? No, just down the street, the Salentio Cai... Cadillante Towers. It's quite a fine example, in fact. I recommend the next time that you're up that way, you drop in and take a gander at it yourself. Dom, tell me you spanked the monkey before any big date. Oh my god. He doesn't flog the dolphin before a big date? Are you crazy? That's like going out there with a loaded gun. Of course that's why you're nervous. It's gotta be, how'd you get the beans above the frank? This is probably my favorite (laughs) line of the movie. I have have, uh, step into my office. Why? Because you're fucking fired. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a a great line. Mary, who needs him? I've got a vibrator. I was going to let mom take that one. (laughs) I actually have that one down, yeah. Oh, I should have let you do it then. (laughs) Well, I was going to finish the one that you had started. Look, look, um, after you've had sex with a girl and you're lying in bed with her, are you nervous? No, you're not. Why? Because I'm tired? Wrong. It's because you ain't got the baby batter on the brain anymore. Jesus, that stuff will fuck up your head. Look, the most honest moment in a man's life for the few minutes after he's blown his load. Now that is a medical fact, and the reason for it is that you're no longer trying to get laid. You're actually, you're thinking like a girl, and girls love that. (laughs) And I will say that is exactly true. My moments of clarity usually come (laughs) post-coital. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> some of my favorite lines are are some of the most inappropriate in the movie. I work with retards is a, a pretty classic <laughs> line. And those goofy bastards are about the best thing I've got going in this crazy world. 
I have, I couldn't believe that she knew my name. Some of my best friends didn't know my name. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Dad, go ahead. Ted, I just want you to be happy, Mary. Mary, but I'd be happier with you, Ted. What about Brett Fevera? What did I tell you before we met? I'm a Niners fan. About a fatty who likes golf and beer. Gee, Mary, where are you going to find a gem like that? <laughs> the Sarah Silverman line, that one's great. <laughs> Obviously, We've Got a Bleeder, I think is a classic. So I have to do the obvious one. Mary, is that is that hair gel? <laughs> of course. I'm out. Uh, another one from Healy when he, another totally inappropriate line when he like blows by all of the, uh, the people who are, you know, have some handicaps and disabilities and then like makes a touchdown and spikes it and then says, exceptional my ass. <laughs> <laughs> Just so harsh. <laughs> and I think that was it for me. Anybody got any left? No, not that I would like to put down in, in some sort of, like, permanent... <laughs> I know, I've canceled myself here, I think, with just, yeah. just quoting these lines. <laughs> yeah, it's clippable art. Yeah, when the chat GPT uh, start wondering about how often some of the things we've said could be used against us. Well, it's not even chat GPT. There's other AI that will mask the sound of your voice or combine things that you've said. So I'm sure there's somewhere out there, given the hours of recordings we have down, that could mimic your voice and probably hold a pretty intelligent conversation with mom over the phone. See, the great thing about that, though, I love ChatGPT and, well, not just ChatGPT, but all the the AI that are doing the deep fakes because that gives you plausible deniability. Pretty soon, we're going to be like, you can't prove we said any of that. That could have been a deep fake. Yeah. But I do try and protect us from uh, at least getting canceled too soon. It's a good strategy. All right. We ready for the Stanley rubric? I am. I am. All right. Let's do it. Legacy is up first. Dad, do you want to start us off? I think this kind of propelled Ben Stiller into having the opportunity to do a lot of different things throughout that time frame. I think it really made Cameron Diaz a bankable star. I mean, I just happened to see a list today of the most paid or the highest paid actor or actresses for a single role. And I think Cameron Diaz was like, like sixth of all time for bad teacher. She got $40 million for what? That was a terrible movie. Jesus. I understand, but she got paid. I just happened to see that list today. And so I think that's, you know, so I'm going to give it a four because I think it really had an impact. And I think it kind of kept the Farley brothers. I mean, it did actually keep the Farley brothers in movies and they've done several since. Is that a four total or is that a split category? For the industry. For the public, this film is faded. If you ask people to list funny films or films that they really like, this does not come up. Although once you mention the name, people go, oh yeah, and they'll either quote it or they'll say hair gel or whatever. So I can't give it too low. So I went with a 2.5 because once they recall it, it's memorable. So I have a 6.5 overall. 
So I'm a half point different from you. I just had a 3.5 on the industry as opposed to your four. I mirror most of your similar comments. I don't know if I would give this movie, though, as much credit as he pulled off a string of like really good films back to back to back. And the Ben Stiller show was a pretty high rated network comedy in the mid 90s. So it's not like he was a complete unknown. However, Cameron Diaz, yes, I think this puts her in the A-list category among actresses of the time. Obviously, Shrek puts it over the limit as far as what her bank ability or her grossing ability was. So I got to give that a little bit of credit. But at the same time, I mean, how many other comedies of this exact sort? I mean, this is right before we got the R-rated comedy boom of the early 2000s to about the late 2000s. But I still don't think this is in the same class as Zoolander, old school, Anchorman, Dodgeball, The Hangover. I think those are in a slightly different class. Different class as far as timeline wise or you mean things that people have remembered and continued to maintain and put into the public consciousness. So I think that's part of the reason that I would only go about halfway on the audience side of things. Because I don't think this is something that's particularly remembered or that people have continued to watch or introduce to new audiences over time. Now, maybe some of that will be reflective in my eventual classicness score, because I think that I may be a little tough. And so that's why I've had some difficulty of where to come down in classicness. But we have a couple of categories in between to get to that point. Either way, I still had a six. Shannon, you look like you're ready to jump in. So go ahead. You know, I think this had some lasting impact. It really resurrected this style of comedy. You had, I know the Fairly Brothers had done, had done Dumb and Dumber, and that had been a, a pretty big hit. But then they had really misfired with Kingpin, which, you know, they tried to sort of go the gross out route, and it just didn't make much of an impression. And they didn't, they didn't have a lot of rope left. I think if they hadn't hit a home run with this one, they were pretty much, you know, they were going to be just doing straight to video after that. So, you know, this kind of brought back this whole style of comedy. And I think it did have a lasting impression for me and the, the people that I know. I think it, I think it just does depend on your maybe demographic and the generation and demographic. This is still like a seminal comedy. When I think of <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, that was not supposed to be a, a pun, but this is a comedy that I think when I think of, you know, great comedies, this is thank you. <laughs> it was was unintentional. This is one of the ones that comes up for me that like, and then, you know, you, you mentioned a different class of comedy with, <laughs> there you go, I'm not even catching when I'm making these puns. You mentioned a different class of comedy. And I think that, you know, the Anchorman era, the the Step Brothers era, the Will Ferrell's, the, you know, Judd Apatow, that's all to me in a different, that's sort of just the next generation of comedy. But this was sort of the end of, a, of, of that, of, of its generation of comedy. And I do think that it's still... I think if you asked people who are interested in comedy and definitely the Apatows of the world, I think this film made an impact. I would give it an industry for public. I, I think you're right that to some extent it's been eclipsed a little bit and maybe f- somewhat forgotten among a certain segment. But again, there are a lot of people like me out there who for them, this is like maybe one of the top tier comedies that they remember from their lives. Uh, but I would give it about a three. So I'm going to go with a seven total. 
and I don't usually do anything with the whole industry thing because that's not my, oh, I don't know what you call Area it. Area of expertise. Thank you. It's not my, but as far as audience is concerned and the, and the legacy effect here, I wouldn't give it more than a two or a three. Other than a few lines until you rewatch the movie, those, they don't stick out for memory purposes. And there's definitely a lot of cringeworthy things in here. And so um, if you didn't watch it in its prime, I'm certainly not going to necessarily go way out of my way to, to tell somebody to, you know, you should really watch this film. So I give it a 2.5. Okay, so you have to at least, now that you've listened to all three of our arguments, what do you think is the closest representation of your understanding of how the industry was impacted or the legacy within the industry of this movie? We all had really good points. I guess I a four. Okay. So you had a 2.5 and a 4? Mm-hmm. Good, because that makes the math really easy. It's a 6.5. <laughs> All right. Impact and significance. So at the time, it's kind of a, a weird situation where we had a fairly big comedy scene in the 90s. But by this point, we were kind of transitioning between groups and eras and we were right at the tail end of when Jim Carrey was really big and even when Adam Sandler's best comedies were. I think his last like really great one to me is probably The Waterboy. There might be some people that put in like 50 First Dates a little bit after that. But that's really the tail end. And as Shane mentioned before, it's kind of a different generation once you move to Stiller in about 1999 and you go towards Owen Wilson and Luke Wilson and Vince Vaughn. Judd Apatow, Will Ferrell, Adam McKay, all of those guys, the Steve Carells, once you kind of transition into those next group of stars, it kind of creates a separation point as far as where the industry was. And they were much more willing to give comedies a chance in that time and place. So while it's probably hurt a little bit in the novelty of it, because there were a lot of these types of comedies, Tommy Boy, Happy Gilmore, Billy Madison... Dumb and Dumber was mentioned. You know, you, you can name five, six, seven of them and just rattle them off from about this mid-90s period, from about, I would say, 94 or so until about 98. It still was one that probably outgrossed most of the other ones. As good as comedies were, not a lot of them were getting into the top five in a particular given year. And this was only outdone by Armageddon, Saving Private Ryan and Godzilla at a worldwide box office. So you have two fairly big action films, one with significant IP, and possibly the culmination of Steven Spielberg's career with the military film that the most people probably went out to see. And then think about the budgets, too, because I imagine like the budget for this, I think, was like 20 million or something. And then it ended up grossing like 350 million or something crazy. Whereas the other films, yeah, they grossed more, but I'm sure they spent a heck of a lot more to make those movies. Tom Hanks was paid 40 for that film, by the way. There you go. (laughs) So it depends on where you think that the dollar amount makes more of a credit towards the audience or the industry. I think that the industry still didn't look fondly upon comedies, even though they were bankable at that point. And while this was somewhat critically praised, it was still taken with that little bit of a chip on its shoulder because it's a comedy. Some of us won't 
disdain to think that we can actually laugh at a movie and think it's good. Some of that kind of chips away at a little bit. I went with a four on the industry, but I had to go a 4.5 for the audience. I do think this was part of a cultural moment. Shane, let's go to you. For audience, I actually agree. I think that's it was a big hit at the time. It was critically well-received and it made a ton of money. And I actually do think that it it opened the door for comedy. I think a lot of studios sort of took a step back and said, oh, wait a minute. Maybe, you know, we, this this is an untapped area where there is a larger audience than we imagined, or at least an audience that's willing to go to the theater and pay more. Because one of the things that you run into with comedy, I think, was what happened with me, which is that most comedies, I didn't feel like I needed to see them on a big screen. It wasn't a cultural event for a comedy. It was something that I would rent later. And so most comedies, like I said, up until that point, I had seen on a small screen because like, you know, I, I didn't feel like it was a spectacle. If I was going to go spend a bunch of money, I wanted to see Godzilla. Right. And so this movie made it sort of like appointment movie, right? Like people had people went to go experience it with other people and I think it did have a, a pretty big impact on the industry as a whole and on the audience for sure. And so I, I would go 4.52. And on the industry? Oh, I'm sorry. So 4.5 for, I would go 4.5 for the audience, probably 4 for the industry again. Okay, so the same 8.5. All right. Mom, do you feel you're ready to take a stab at the industry side or should no. we let Dan go first? Oh, that's just not my thing. So go ahead, Dana. I think it had positive reviews i mean i think there were some critics that i saw that thought it's a little over the top and whatever so i went with a three but i'm or i remember when this film came out and it became kind of a cultural touchstone and i'm i'm old enough to remember going to the video stores whether it was blockbuster or we had family video in our town Hold on, hold on, hold on. You said, I'm old enough to remember going to the video stores? How old do you think we are? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's been a while. They all went to the video store, too. It hasn't been that long since they all It's only been like 15 years since those were popular. All right. Not even. I think Family Video closed here about seven years ago. I remember going. And you would gauge the popularity of a movie by how many copies they had on the shelf and how many of them were gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is one of the films where they had like 15 copies and you were scrambling because somebody returned one that afternoon and they hadn't quite put it back on the shelf. So you would go over and go, do you have a copy? And they would. So I'm giving it a full five. They had to rewind it first. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the person who brought it back didn't rewind. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we had the rewinder. Yes, we had the special rewind. Rewind. We had the actual rewinder that we had sitting there to rewind all of our VHS tapes. Yeah, so Tom could continually watch Peter Pan. <laughs> I think I, I I'm going to revise up to a five because I think you're right. I remember this just being huge. Like I remember everyone quoting it. I remember at the time, like you said, it was really hard to get a copy. And everyone that I knew was like in love with this movie. So I, I would go five for, for the audience. So I'm at an eight. All right, Ma. Moment of truth. Moment of truth. Well, I think I've changed what I originally thought, actually, after listening to all of you. And this is a movie, I guess, 
that I must have seen in the theater that I don't remember seeing in the theater, but it did make an impact on me. And I know that it made an impact on my friends who also watched it because we discussed this movie. <laughs> what is that for, Dana? <laughs> what? Shocking that you wouldn't remember seeing a movie. I know I saw the movie. I don't recall seeing it in the theater. We'll talk about this later. Is <laughs> that like when you tried to tell me that you'd seen Call Me By Your Name and I asked you what the peach scene was? <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, okay, well, anyway, anyway. So I'll give it a seven. Ooh. Ooh. Gonna make me do math. All right. <laughs> You used to be good yeah, at once it. You, once you enroll in law school, you will no longer be able to do math. Yeah, that's what everybody in the office has all of a sudden been saying. If I don't ever want to do math, become a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. So that's a 8.13 between the four of us. All right, novelty. This is not one where we have to split the category. So, Mom, I'm going to let you go first. All right. Well, this is still a boy meets girl they have a problem, they come back in the end, and they and they get together. So that's not really something new. And I don't think that necessarily the premise we were talking about how, you know, our relationships come back, and it's kind of a, an everyday, or this is what people wish would happen. So none of that is really novel. So I gave it a four. Wow, you and I were on the same wavelength. Wow, that's scary, Tom. <laughs> Either you're starting to think better or I'm starting to think worse. Anyway. <laughs> no, I, I agree with a lot of the points you made. This is pretty black and inappropriate humor that is still a little funny. The execution 25 years on is pretty cringy. I also don't think that this was particularly novel. I mean, how many romantic comedies they meet when they're younger then they come back around, they meet later in life, and all of a sudden now the situation is just right for them to intertwine at this exact moment. Now, this plays up a little bit more that there's other things involved and tries to execute on a slightly different level with stalkers and all this other peripheral nonsense. But the heart of it, the premise of it is still very similar. The jokes, I think, go a little bit further. So if you're going to give it a an extra point or two up for novelty. It's going to be on its audacity more than anything else. There is no other comedy that's willing to do a jizz joke that is going to be popular to the American public. Maybe I can move myself up to a five if, if somebody can talk me up to it. But where I originally came down, I'm like, is this really that unique? So I had a four two, at least for right now. It's interesting. I mean, listening to you guys, I, I do think that it is formulaic and but the premise obviously is has been done and it's predictable and you know that he's going to get the girl but that to me isn't what makes this movie novel i think it is audacity was a great word i think that this is a movie that really like i said swings for the fences it was shocking to me when i saw it in the theater and to me if i'm surprised by something to the point that even back then when you could get away with more and maybe quote political correctness wasn't as big of a deal watching it now it's definitely shocking back then it was shocking and that was where a lot of the humor came from and it was something that i didn't think you could get away with i didn't think that you could get not only did i not think you could get away with that i didn't think that it would still be funny to try to get away with that 
And, you know, a great example is the dog scene. Just like I'm a huge animal fan. I love animals. I don't like the idea of, of a dog being beaten, tossed around and attacked uh, with, you know, electricity and caught on fire. But somehow they made that hilarious. And I could not stop laughing through the entire scene, even though, you know, normally that would just I would just it would be a gross out. I would just be like, this movie is terrible. This is cruel and senseless and stupid. And I don't like and but it all worked. And to me, that was very novel. So if we're going, are we on a scale from one to 10 for this? Yeah, for this one, and we're not splitting it, right? I would probably go around at like 6.5. Like you guys said, it's not a novel premise at all. But I think that they really did something different. And that's why it made such an impression and was such a big deal. Because people just weren't movies just weren't doing that at the time and and aren't doing it now. You know, so I would say a 6.5. Well, yes, it's formulaic. You know, and it's been done multiple times before. I understand that. I mean, after all, you know, most of the movies are really unique that exist. There's nothing that, like, is a complete ripoff of Shakespeare because ultimately almost every freaking movie has some element where it's a ripoff of Shakespeare. So there isn't anything original. The originality of this film comes into lies outside of the traditional rom-com. And it's the humor, it's the fact that we have intervening forces, whether it's Healy or it's uh, Tucker or whatever. That's where the novelty comes in, is to take these bizarre characters and spin them into something much greater than what the traditional rom-com would carry forward. So I'm going to go way above all of you. I went with a 7.5 because the characters and how they interplay and how they present themselves and how everything is done is completely novel over the the traditional rom-com. I'm going to go up to a seven, actually, after hearing that, because I I agree. And again, I was really surprised numerous times by this movie. And, you know, even though, like you said, it's formulaic, so many movies are formulaic. But if within that formula, I'm surprised many times, I think that's fairly novel. So I'm going to go up to a seven. I will raise mine up to a 5.5. I've given myself some outs here as far as that. I just have to ask one question. Dad, did we switch bodies? Every week, I argue the exact same point that you're making, and you just shout me down. No, this is based on a novel, or no, this is a sequel to something, or no. Did I finally get through, or what the the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's just, uh, whatever position you take, I just like to go against it. Oh, (laughs) so you're the Stephen A. Smith of this podcast. (laughs) Yes. I was talking to the elevator operator who knows... Uh, so-and-so who knows so-and-so who's the barber for Shaquille O'Neal and I'm gonna okay well divided among the four of us the average is a six okay all right classicness dad you lead (laughs) (laughs) I'm a fucking disability attorney (laughs) <laughs> i mean i can't i can't watch this and go oh okay tucker flumbling around on his on his i mean uh, uh, and then it's all faked on top of it and then you know the brother 
Uh, and I'm drawing a blank. Was- Warren. Wow. Okay. No, you can't do this. Oh, and they're talking about the wiener? The only redeeming quality is, is that Cameron Diaz is a compassionate, warm person toward the mentally challenged. <sighs> it's that reason that I'm giving it a little higher than I normally would. I mean, we're talking point zero five <laughs> is birth of a nation. Okay. Oh, no, 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 no. Birth of a Nation is the absolute zero. Yeah, I think that should be, but I don't know if there's anything. Well, I haven't seen but clips of it, so I'll suppose. Well, I've watched it, and I'm telling you, it is the absolute origin. It is the zero point. It is the thing that is the least classic that all other movies can be compared against. Well, I mean, after all, it does present a movie that worships the Ku Klux Klan. But anyway... (laughs) I mean, it was a recruitment uh, tool for them, so yeah. It was yeah, so... It's credited with basically creating the second Red Scare. I know, I know, and of course, it was the most popular movie in the Wilson White House. Anyway, so on that, I'm going to go with a 2.5, simply because at least Cameron Diaz was a sympathetic and viable champion for the mentally handicap. Well, not just the mentally, but also physically, because she was friends with quote unquote Tucker before she knew that he was the pizza boy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's just get some of these issues out of the way. Who picks up a hitchhiker anymore? Unless it's Uber. Stalkers. Peeping Toms. Toxic masculinity. Unnecessary titillation. Animal cruelty. Inappropriate aid to a minor. I'm not even mentioning, like, the police brutality in the middle of this film. Yes. You've got so many different things that should probably make this so ill-classic. But part of classicness is, is this movie still funny? Does it make you laugh? And it does have its moments. So, I'm going to do something I only do when I'm having a really hard time trying to differentiate where this thing should place. Our lowest scoring classicness ever is a 2.33 for The Room. Is this less classic than The Room? No, probably not. Our next lowest score is The Help at 3. Now, part of that is reflective of we did that movie the week after the George Floyd incident. So is it less classic than The Help right following George Floyd? I don't well, it think so. got a bump up because of the chocolate pie. Either way. <laughs> So our next next highest uh, or lowest scoring classicness film was Wedding Crashers because you and our guest at the time tore that to shreds. Now, <laughs> I think this that Wedding Crashers is probably more classic than that one, but I'm willing to give this the benefit of the doubt since you already undercut this by giving it a 2.5. I'm going to go with a 3.5 because it is still a little bit funny. And despite all of its issues, which are just going to continue to age poorly over time, at least for right now, as we sit, I think I can give it a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. So I'm at a 3.5. Now, Shane, come in with your eight. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I'm going to go higher than you guys. I, I am more charitable with this. As a comedian who works in comedy clubs, I'm seeing, you know, there is a lot of political correctness. There are jokes that I don't do that I did 10 years ago when I started comedy and I wouldn't do them now, but that doesn't make them not funny. And some of them I've brought back just to see how the audience would react. And they've still worked. Like, funny is funny. And they don't, it's not mean-spirited. This isn't a movie where they make fun of handicapped people a lot. It is a movie where I think the casting would be an issue nowadays, but it's it's not really, it's not intended to denigrate people who have handicaps. It's really making fun of people. In fact, it was making fun of a guy who was not politically correct, right? Like he's the butt of the joke. His lack of political correctness is a lot of times what the humor is. It's like, can you believe that there's a guy who's this clueless and this big of a jerk? So I don't think that it holds up as poorly as you guys think it does. I do think that it's definitely a product of its time. I was actually, you know, I have some, I'm, the girl that I'm dating right now is significantly younger than me and she was able to watch it and thought it was pretty funny. She didn't get like super up in arms about it. I think when you know that this is a movie of its time, you can forgive a lot. And I think humor just forgives everything. Like again, funny is funny. I see comics do stuff that you think that they can't get away with because Twitter says you can't. But I'm telling you, people are laughing at this stuff in comedy clubs. If it's funny, it's funny. This movie's funny. And I give it a, I would say, a, I'm going to go with a 5.5. By the way, would you like to share any of the jokes that you uh, didn't think were? Uh, boy, I could. Yeah, I mean, one of the jokes was about, oh, I don't even, I'm not going to say it on here. It just wouldn't work. But like, I have a joke, for instance, about how I used to go out with this girl, not romantically, but we would hang out a lot and we would go to these bars and she would drink like straight Jaeger shots and then I would make sure she got home. And the next day she would wake up and say like, wow, I was really out of it last night. I'm pretty sure I think someone drugged me. And I had a whole joke about, yeah, I'm pretty sure you drugged yourself. Like, I'm pretty sure that it was the bartender giving you the Jaeger. There's actually a punchline to it. So it's funny. But that's a joke that I would. But that's a joke that I wouldn't. That's a joke that I wouldn't do now. I did do it a, a few weeks ago at a comedy club and it killed, which was surprising to me because you do think like, oh, a guy telling a joke about potentially, you know, making fun of a woman for putting herself in a bad situation is not funny anymore. But it is because honestly, the joke's pretty funny. And it's also true. Like this is a girl who was like, ah, I think some someone was out to get me. And it's like, nah, I'm pretty sure it was the 12 Jaeger shots that you took. So that's the kind of thing where again, funny is still funny and true is still true. And those are things that I was surprised that it worked as well as it did. But I probably shouldn't have been. Because like, like I said, honestly, if something is funny, and it's not mean spirited, then I think it that does come across. And I think this movie does not come across as, you know, there are movies, even Fairly Brothers movies, where it you watch it and, and I would cringe quite a bit. And I'm pretty politically correct. I'm a very liberal guy, but I don't cringe that much with this movie. I just laugh. And so I don't know, I, I think it holds up pretty well. I think the scene, though, that offended me the most was where they told the the brother Warren of the boys at the high school, you know, and he's got the big red earmuffs on and they're, they're talking to him and they're like, you got to ask about, you know, your wiener or whatever. Have you seen my wiener? He was looking for his baseball. And I just think that's a big bully scene. It's such a no, no. I think that just totally hit a raw spot for me. That's the one point in the movie. But I don't think they're making fun of Warren. Yeah. That's the one point in the movie though, for me, where it just, brings everything down. And and I don't know if it's because of what we do, because, you know, we have a, a Down um, syndrome goddaughter. If I'm just like uber sensitive to people who have mental 
um, handicaps or what, but that, that scene offended me. But the rest of it, if you suspend your belief system for a while, because it's funny, and just um, enjoy it for entertainment's sake, then and forget about the fact that all this stuff is like super wrong. And we don't talk about that stuff anymore. Yeah, it's classic. It's funny. It's I still enjoy it. He comes out in the the pink superhero thing. And I went, Oh, really? There's so much stereotyping. And it's just so I actually started with a one because it's so bad in so many ways. But I think you know, and talking with you guys and listening to things, like I said, if you suspend your belief system and go into it knowing that there is a lot wrong with this film and just do it for pure enjoyment's sake, um, yeah, it's a classic. I'd watch it again tomorrow if I can watch it. I'll go up a point. I'll go to 3.5. And I missed your number, Shane. Oh, I think I said, what did I say? It's uh, 5.5. Okay. And mom, I you never gave a number. Oh, um, yeah, I said I started at a one, but I I guess a three. Okay. Well, that's a more neat grouping than I, I thought we would get. We're relatively within the realm of possibilities of each other. I do think it has a difference with who the presenter is. If you're going to an Anthony Jeselnik concert, you know exactly that he's going to end with abortion jokes. It's just going to happen. But that's not everybody. You can't go to Jim Gaffigan and expect that to work. Although his last special's cut pretty damn close. Uh, he's just making diarrhea jokes. He's been making those since he did Hot Pockets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's a 3.88 between the three of us. So it comes out ahead of Wedding Crashers and a couple of other movies. It is not at the bottom, which there was a real threat for a while that that might be near the bottom, but it's at least above the room and the help post George Floyd. So it's got that going for it, which is nice. Rewatchability. Shane, I think you're the most fond of this one. So start us off on a high note. Oh yeah. For me, I mean, I, this is going to be way above you guys. I would, I had a great time watching it. I've watched it probably once every few years and I'm sure I'll watch it again. So for me, this would be an eight for rewatchability. All right. Mom, I think you're probably second highest on this one, so we'll just work our way back down. Um, yeah, I like I said, I find this movie funny. If you suspend all of your problems, and I would, I would definitely rewatch this movie. It'd been a while since I'd seen it. Yeah, I, you know, if it's on next week and I catch the middle of it, I'd finish it. So I'd say six. So if we're going to put our new test on rewatchability to affect here. There are parts of this that drag for me a little bit. The Pat Healy stuff, like early on when he's first really snooping at her, it wasn't as funny as I, I remembered. And I don't feel like I need to see this nearly as regularly as some other comedies that are probably in my go-to repertoire. I'd probably put it at a two for that I might put it on of my own volition. And maybe about a 3.5 that I would leave it on on my own, just because I think once you get to about the second half of the movie, it's gotten some really good spots. If it's the early prom scene, I'd probably leave it on for that, but I don't know how much past the prom scene that I would necessarily leave it on. It might be one where I'd speed through some spots if uh, it was like recorded or I saw it on streaming or something else. 
So I think I'm going to end up at a 5.5. Well, for me, I haven't seen it in probably 20 years. But I'm like going, okay, yeah, it makes me cringe. So I'm not going to give it the seven that I would on a regular basis. So I'm going to go with a 5.5 because, yeah, this is a film that if it's on or I'm flipping around and it's on, I'll stop and watch it for a bit because there were some really damn good performances. I mean, Ben Stiller, Cameron Diaz, Matt Damon, or I mean, uh, Matt Damon. Matt Damon? Yeah. Matt Dillon. Matt Damon. (laughs) (laughs) Matt Dillon. So, yeah. And anytime I can watch Brett Favre, you know, look like a decent guy who's not trying to steal money from disabled people in Mississippi. <laughs> yeah, talk about classicness right on that. <laughs> yeah, that part didn't age well, I guess. Yeah. At least you could have gotten like Troy Aikman. Yeah. Anyway. Or they, I would think they went for Steve Young, but he wasn't he wasn't having it. Well yeah, because I mean it's a sexually explicit movie. You know, Steve Young, no, I don't think so. Anyway, so more than 5.5. All right. For, so that creates a 6.25 average between the four of us. For audience score, we had a 79% for Google users and a 61% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a 7 total. So to repeat the categories, we had a 6.5 average for Legacy, an 8.13 average for Impact and Significance, a 6 for Novelty, a 3.88 average for classicness, a 6.25 for rewatchability, and a 7 for audience score, giving us a final total of 37.76, and currently placing it on our list between Bronson and Dodgeball. Would not have guessed this would be above Dodgeball, but that's a movie that's pretty much rescued by us both giving it a 10 for rewatchability. (laughs) and you guys just watched it what two days ago (laughs) well that's because i'm doing the movie challenge with my friends and the first day up was watch a movie that you would put on at any time so i'm like sure (laughs) all right again if you disagree with our scores have a problem with us or just simply want to comment on anything that was said during the scoring of this please write us at greatest all-time movie podcast at gmail.com or you can Catch us on our website, RonnieDuncanStudios.com backslash Gmote Podcast, or find us on any of our socials at Gmote Podcast on Twitter, TikTok, or Instagram. Remaining questions. All right, I've been teasing this now for like an hour and a half. If Ted didn't know who Brett Favre was, a three-time MVP and Super Bowl winner who was just coming off of losing the Super Bowl, why the fuck would he know that Brett doesn't play for the 49ers? I don't understand your question at all. There's nothing that indicates he knows or doesn't know. He says Brett Favre. So if he doesn't he's making know. Fun, he's making fun of the fact that even Packer fans had problems because the name is not pronounced how it's spelled. Yes, of course. But it's not like he was an unknown entity. So Ted does not follow sports. It would have been okay. one thing had this been done in 1994 when Brett Favor was still trying to like make a name for himself. But when he's won three consecutive MVPs, been in the Super Bowl back-to-back years winning one, if you're at all a football fan, you know who Brett Favre is. 
and probably can pronounce the name thanks to John fucking Madden. But by 1998, if you can't pronounce the name, the likelihood that you know he plays on the Green Bay Packers as opposed to the San Francisco 49ers, I just don't know why that would matter. All she had to say for the line was, is, Ted, I'm not interested in Brett. Well, I'll, I'll just share a story. I uh, used to be in Kiwanis in my home or my area, Wisconsin Rapids, and we used to do a, a charity basketball tournament where Packer players would come and play local celebrities in this charity game. 1994, they're playing the game, and all of a sudden, one of the guys says, this guy comes up, and he taps him on the shoulder, and he said, hey, I understand there's some sort of, like, charity game going on. He goes, oh, yeah, they're playing now. He says, oh, well, apparently I got traded here, and I just had my physical, so I drove over. I figured I could kind of show up. And he said, who are you? He says, well, I'm Brett. He says, oh, well, do you want to go play? And he said, well, sure. So he went out and he played a bit. He ended up taking half of the Kiwanis Club of Wisconsin Rapids, and they, like, bar hopped all over Wisconsin Rapids until they pretty much had to call for help getting back to their homes. And what is the point of that story? (laughs) Especially since it was 1993. I thought it was a good story. If you don't like it, (laughs) cut it. So you just told a story for the sake of telling a Brett Favre story? Well, of course. (laughs) All right. I mean, I think you're right that the the it doesn't make sense. But the joke is that his name is hard to pronounce. And I think I I have a feeling that that was something that was probably added into the script later on. And it just feels like one of those sort of tags where it was like, it would be funny if you mispronounce Brett Favre's name. And I think it does kind of work. It made me chuckle. So, you know, you're right, though. It doesn't make sense. It's a joke for the audience. I'm yeah. sure it works in the laugh, but I'm just nitpicking. I'm well aware that I'm highlighting something else. It's only because you're a Packer fan. No, it's because I'm a sports fan. <laughs> it helps that I'm a Packer fan, but I think I would have noticed that regardless. Why the fuck is Ted so gullible? Everybody can fuck with Ted. He's supposed to be, you know, guileless. I think he's the... <laughs> He's the straight man, every man that we're supposed to be rooting for. Right. Kind of the thought most of us around you have about you, Tom. (laughs) Hardly. I think it makes him more sympathetic. Yes. There would have been a time in my life where that would have been accurate until you basically forced it out of me at age 12. (laughs) Uh, Just consider most of your uh, young life kind of the equivalent of the song Boy Named Sue. (laughs) It was about the point in time where I started to question you was right around when you tried to convince me the coach of Wausau West was your godfather. (laughs) (laughs) Even though we have no affiliation or any family in Wausau. We did too. Uncle Daryl and Aunt Jen were up there. Okay, I I stand corrected, but that's the other side of the family. We went to the game and you said... You know, like, Dad, who are we rooting for? It was Wisconsin Rapids and Wausau West. I said, Wausau West. Why would we be rooting for Wausau West? Because we're from Wisconsin Rapids. And I said, well, because he's my godfather. 
<laughs> well, and I stopped pretty much trusting you about the point in time where fantasy sports became so valuable to me. And I thought, there's no way my dad would ever take advantage of me in a trade. So I trade you Shaquille O'Neal in his prime in 2000 when he wins the MVP and Vince Carter for Kevin Garnett, who is one of my favorite players, and Vladi Divas. <laughs> You should have known better because, you know, when you were playing Castle. And As I maintain, I, I was 10 years old. And what 10-year-old boy wouldn't trust his own dad unless his dad had run out on him at some point? He was just fucking with you, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to toughen you up, son. <laughs> All right. Other remaining questions or nitpicks <laughs> I, I don't have any I don't really have any mom you look like you might be good for one well there's the whole situation still about why chris elliott's character woogie who's married with children is in this group of men trying to get back together with mary it just he's sort of beyond all of that right if you like him so much you take him yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I mean, there's a reason why he was rolling shit. He's just... The same character over and over. It just continues to work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. everybody knows this person. If it ain't broke. I didn't like him in Groundhog Day or Snow Day. <laughs> I just was shocked when Abby Elliott, who was on Saturday Night Live was his daughter. I had no clue that it was, there was a relationship. And I think she's at least mildly attractive. Well, it's gotta be his wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> it's not him. Well, thank you to both of our guests for being here. Uh, Mom, as always, I think this is either your 11th or 12th appearance. It's gonna be hard for anyone to ever like surpass you unless you just stop being on the show. <laughs> Shane, thank you very much, as always. We are looking forward to whenever your fifth episode will be so you can get your hat. I'm excited. But in the meantime, let everybody know where they can find you on socials and uh, where they can find Midnight Facts or Insomniacs. Yeah, Midnight Facts for Insomniacs on any podcast player. And uh, what it is, for anyone who doesn't know, we just every week we have a new topic uh, so it's always something interesting. We recently did the history of space exploration. We've done the history of ocean exploration. We've done astrology. We've kind of touched on a little bit of everything. Sports scandals was a recent one. Uh, so always something interesting. And uh, I really love my co-host. He's super funny. And so I think everyone would enjoy it. So check it out on any podcast player, Midnight Facts for Insomnia. And I think they can also find it on your website, correct? Yeah, you can go to our website. You can do, there's also shanerogers.net and you can see any shows and stuff that I have coming up as well. Perfect. Dad, anything you want to say quickly or we'll just kind of cap it off for the week? No, I'm, I'm good. All right. Well, that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. No, 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 no. My father always taught me, never desert a lady in trouble. He even carried that as far as marrying my mother. Next week, for our 181st episode, we discuss the early Alfred Hitchcock classic, The Lady Vanishes, from 1938, celebrating its 85th anniversary, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, written by Alma Revel, Sidney Gilliatt, and Frank Launder, music by Louis Levy and Charles Williams, starring Margaret Lockwood, 
Michael Redgrave, and Paul Lucas. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnydunkinstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.